Amen. Thank you, Hill Girls. Are you trusting in your Redeemer and rejoicing in your Redeemer this morning? I hope so. Well, I'm not quite as pessimistic as Corky is. I'm encouraged that you're here this morning. Bless your hearts. Thank you. We got a full house. But as I reminded our prayer team this morning, um, as long as God's here, we're doing all right. That's the most important person that needs to show up if this is truly time for church. Well, we are continuing this Communion Sunday, our series on God's tunes, which, of course, is taken out of the book of Psalms. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 15 this morning. And in this psalm, this is another psalm where David asks a question. Now, in the past, we looked at Psalm 8 and David asked a question in that psalm. And he said, who is man? He always asks good questions. Who is man that you, O God, would be mindful of him? Little man, big, tremendous, majestic God. Who are we that we would even cross your mind? Well, in this psalm, Psalm 15, he asks another good question. It's a different question. And this question that he asks is, who can join or dwell with God on his holy hill? Who who can walk with God? Who can sojourn with God? Who can be with God? So he's asking this question, what kind of person or what type of person would want to fellowship, would want to be with God, spend time with God? And what kind of person would God want to fellowship with and spend time with? And so that question is going to be answered in this psalm. And I guess you could put it simply Uh, Who would want to hang out with God and who would God want to hang out with? So let's read this. It's five verses. It's one of the shorter Psalms. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So just so there isn't any confusion, this is not a list of things that we have to do in order to be saved. This isn't David's question. It's not what must we do to be saved. It's what must we do to fellowship with God, to be in the presence of God, to hang out with God. So to clarify, we don't have to do a list of things to be saved. You don't have to do works to be saved. You're saved by grace. But you are saved to works. And we still get that confused to this very day, the the difference between justification and sanctification. So it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared and advance for us to do. So we're saved by grace, but we're saved to good works. 
We're saved to obey the law. We're saved to reflect the image of Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, the way that you were saved was by offering a blood sacrifice. That's the only way you can remove the barrier between man and God, between sin and holiness. And so in the Old Testament, they look forward to the ultimate sacrifice by offering sacrifices as animals. And that's indicative of the atoning blood, the redeeming blood of Christ. And so they look forward to that. In the New Testament, we look back to the cross of Christ, the redeeming blood of Christ that separates the barrier and brings us into the presence of God. But when you're brought into the presence of God, when you're saved, there is an expectation. God is on a mission, if you will, not just to save us, but to conform us, to fashion us into his image. And that requires that we take on a certain presence, a a, a certain morality. And that's where the law no longer condemns us to God's wrath. But now it lifts us up. Now it conforms us and shapes us and. One of the reasons I prayed this morning that we would our hearts would be supernaturally transformed by the power of God's word this morning. That's what we want to happen. We don't want to be Christians that stay in sin. We want to be Christians that fall in love with God's law. And so David is listing a few things. And this is not a comprehensive list. Of course, we find these things in in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. It's not a a comprehensive list, but it's a solid list of characteristics, of descriptions of a kind of person that would want to spend as much time with possible as possible with God. And a description of who God delights in once they have been saved by grace. So this is a worship song that we certainly can apply to ourselves, we are I mean, this is our service that we commune with God. We're going to come and fellowship with God at the Lord's Supper this morning where we come and he invites us to partake of his body and his blood in remembrance of him. This is totally a fellowshipping experience. And then we're going to worship God and exalt him through our praise this morning. So this is a time of fellowship. And if you want to know What kind of person does God delight in? David's going to help us along the way with that. And in this psalm, we see three. I'll distill it to three characteristics. We're going to see that we need to be a a man or a woman of um, of integrity. Actually, I'm going to do them. I'm going to preach them backwards. But first, you would see that we need to handle our money properly, our possessions Secondly, you'd see that we need to be a person of character, godly character. That's what David points out and describes. And thirdly, we need to be a man or woman of integrity. But I'm going to preach through those backwards. So first characteristic. How he uses his money. Verse five, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? It always enthralls me, intrigues me that the Bible, in particularly Jesus, talks so much about money. He's constantly talking about our possessions and how we use them. And I think it's because it's one of those things in life that we just have to have. You can't go without some kind of bartering, you know, numismatic system. 
And it's one of those things that we have to have. And therefore, it's one of those things that we can often love too much because we have to have it. And it's kind of like food. You know, we, we don't want food to be our source of sin and sometimes get sick and tired of it. And, and, and sometimes I want to say, that's it. I'm done with this source of sin. I'm not eating anymore. But I can't do that because I need to eat. And money is the same thing. We can't just say I'm sick of money consuming me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm manipulating it. It's it's replacing it's being uh, replacing God in my life. And so I just am tired with money. I'm giving it all away. I don't want any possessions because all they do is trip me up. We can't do that. And so the Bible's always teaching us to to, to just be self-controlled about it. It's constant. Reminders, be self-controlled, keep the proper perspective. And even in the Old Testament, we have this idea that if you want to spend time with God, then we need to have self-control over our possessions, how we acquire money. And then once we have it, what do we do with it? It is so important to God. It's more important to God than it is to us, I think I could say. What do we do with these things that we love so much, these material things? Jesus reminded us in his Sermon on the Mount, that powerful sermon about not serving two masters. It doesn't work. You either love God or you love mammon. You love money. And then he warned us about the dangers of greed and how, boy, it's a hard sin to put your finger on because it gets down into the, the dark places of our heart where we can just excuse it away. And yet it's so powerful because it changes the way we look at life. It changes the way we look at each other, changes the way we look at God. And that's why God is saying, be careful with it because it's so dangerous. And so to come in the presence of God, to fellowship with God, we want to make sure that our possessions are in the right place, our mindset about them, how we acquire them. And we live in a world, we live in a culture, and the world has always been this way, that you just can't trust everybody. We can't even trust ourselves sometimes when it comes to this. We have to be very, very careful. In Nehemiah 5, you'll remember we went through that book, and Nehemiah brings some of the people from Persia because the 70 years of captivity was over, the punishment and chastisement, and he brings them in, and they're back into the promised land. Finally, they cried over it. They longed for it. They missed it. And they're back here. But they're starting from scratch. It was devastated from their enemies while it was primarily vacant. They're scratching, trying to make a living. And among the people of God were wealthy people. And some of the people were very impoverished. And the people that were impoverished could barely even feed their families. They were starving to death. And the people with money would say, here, I'd be glad to lend you money so you, your kids don't starve to death at a certain exorbitant interest rate. And Nehemiah called him out on that. He called him out on that. This is not the time for you to get rich. God cares about our money. And it's not an indictment against making more money or even charging interest on your money. I mean, the parable of talents, I think, would challenge that, where God says, what? You still have the same amount. You didn't double it. You didn't triple it. It's how we acquire it and what we do with it once we we do require it. And the idea is don't love your money more than God or people. Don't, don't use your money to take advantage of it. Don't use your your finances or your position of power to skirt the law because you can, because you can bribe people to do that. 
That's not the kind of character that God is looking for and delights in when we come before him. So these are the kind of things we want to be searching our hearts for as we fellowship with God this morning. And God also teaches how important it is among our perspective that we use our God-given provisions to invest in kingdom things. We are some of us have responsibilities. It's it's our responsibility to put food on the table. It's our responsibility to clothe our family and our loved ones or whoever we're caring for that God has put under our charge. We use it for that. But we also use our possessions to invest in the kingdom of God. That is important to God. That's one of the reasons that he gives us money to begin with. I recently read an article in Christianity Today by Ed Stetzer. An article was really about heroes and how not everybody can be a hero. But there are many of us that can help make heroes, so to speak. And then he just told this little story about a man uh, long, not too long ago, but a while ago, a man was vacationing in Florida and he was golfing. So he's on a golf course in Florida. And one of the there was a young man there that was his caddy. And this young man attended a local unaccredited Bible college in Florida. But as his caddy, the older guy and the young guy, the young caddy, they were both believers and they struck up a conversation. And this older guy just really began to like this younger guy. He was fascinated with him. He liked his heart. And so he tells him, he said, well, have you ever considered um, furthering your your biblical studies at Wheaton College? It's a college that, of course, is still in existence today. Solid college. And the young man said, well, that's one of the places that I really would love to go, but I'm not financially able. And so the older guy says, well, I'm actually on the board of that college. And I'll tell you what. I'll pay your first year tuition and then I will work very hard at trying to get a scholarship for you for the remaining time if you attend. And so that young man did attend Wheaton College and he graduated from Wheaton College. Now, the name of the older man that was on the board was Elner Edward. Elner Edward. How many have heard of Elner Edward? I saw one person scratch their head, but no hands went up. The young, the young caddy, his name was Billy Graham. Investing. Do we, have, do, do, do we even look at our money as potential to invest in the kingdom of God? That maybe God, it's running through our fingers for that very reason. This is a kind of men and women that God likes to spend time with that have let the light of the gospel come into even the dark parts of their hearts where they're not holding on to things so tightly. But they're generous. God loves a cheerful giver of all things. How many of us put our money in the plate or write the check with a smile on our face? It is an honor to give to God. It's just an honor. He could say, keep your money. I don't want it. Buy whatever you want with it. Keep it. But he says, I'll share in my plan that shall come to pass. You 
can be a part of it. It's an incredible opportunity. And we want to keep our eyes open for ways in this congregation that we can further exalt God. That we can make sure saints are edified and that the lost are being evangelized. And thank you for those of you that have your eyes open. That thank you for those among us that invest in the kingdom of God. That invest in this kingdom outpost that's building on the rock. None other than Jesus Christ and his revealed word in Holy Scripture. Powerful tool to abiding in Christ. And then the second attribute or characteristic that we see is godly character. That's what David's describing here in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And then verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. And all these if you look all these words up, what, what you basically wind up with is a very well morally rounded person. This describes a, a man or a woman as one who is diligently working on the flaws in their lives. The things in their lives that upset God, the things in their lives that they read in his word that are that God's against. He doesn't like them. They cause separation, breakage, their sins, their transgressions, and they're, they're constantly chipping away at these things. Not moral perfection. It's unattainable in this life. We get that through Christ. Christ did that for us. But somebody who's constantly chipping away and working at their lives to make them look more like Christ. So they're morally well-rounded. They're not like really good in this and then really horrifically terrible and evil in this. That's not morally well-rounded. So if you think you're a reliable, trustworthy Christian because you're pretty good at this and then pretty good at that and the strong point, but then you're you're absolutely hooked on porn or you're giving your heart and your mind to lustful romances or all you can think about is yourself and you're given to vanity and it's just terrible stronghold in your life. Or you have hatred in your heart and you're refusing to get rid of it. You're not a person of godly character. You're not well-rounded. You've you got three round wheels maybe, but there's that square wheel in your life that makes it really hard to ascend the hill. It's this obstacle that's holding you back. It's not well-rounded. Because this person that David describes has such a heart for God that they want to spend time with God. And while they're there with God, they don't want these obstacles because they love him more than they love their sin. And so, yeah, they fall, but they get back up. Constantly aware, constantly working. They get the plank out of their own eye. They see it in their own hearts. Evil. God is displeased with evil. I don't want any more than necessary in my life. And really, I don't like sin out in the world because I know that troubles God as well. I don't like to see it in myself. I don't like to see it in others. So they despise it. They also despise a person 
who is vile. Isn't that interesting? They despise it when they see strongholds in other people's lives. It's for the glory of God, of course. It's not this self-righteous judgment. We live in a cult. We live in a culture right now that is doing just the opposite. So now what we do, rather than despising vileness and evil practices, we make that person a celebrity. They become like a role model in our culture. We celebrate sin. So greed, I mean, we celebrate wealth and a lot of times we celebrate Greed, it doesn't matter how you got all that money, but just driving that car and living in that house, that's all that matters. You're a celebrity, didn't matter how you got there. So really, we, we hold certain sins in honor and glory. Vanity. Our culture is consumed with vanity. But once somebody reaches that, doesn't matter how much money you spend or how vain you are, how so self-focused you are. What matters is you just look good. For that picture, it's all that matters. Doesn't matter how much money you squandered, who you stepped on, how fake you've been. There's just different things. So recently, um, I watched one of those shows. It's a talent show, voice talent or idol um, something. It's one of those talent voice shows. Uh, uh I got talent. What is it called? Anyway, it's one of those talent shows where you you display your talent. And so this there was a young man on this show and he was dressed as a girl, could have passed as a girl, sang as a girl, incredibly talented, sang as a girl, had his boyfriend. They were engaged. They're going to get married very soon. He's performing, trying to be a big star. And after his performance, the MC just, oh, couldn't couldn't put enough praise on this young man uh, and held him up and literally said the words, a role model for those that are looking. Thank you for being a role model dressing. You're a man that's dressed as a woman. You're going to marry another guy. You are a role model. And I thought, wow. And that's just one show. Everybody does it. Now, it's the thing to do in the media. It's just the thing to do. It's a cultural thing to do. Celebrities do it to each other. You know, they they highlight the sin and make it a big deal. Instead of calling it what it is, it's a it's a cultural shift. And now you're just called out for the bravery and the courage. And I'm not saying that it doesn't take a lot of courage to come out of the closet. It doesn't take a lot of courage to dress as a woman and sing as a woman. I'm not saying that because it does. It does take a lot of courage to do that. And that's the part that's hailed by our society. But the reason it takes a lot of courage to do that is because there was a time and day in our age, in our Christian culture, where we, where Christians, took the courage and came out to do the right thing and went against the cultural sway. And so that became the norm. And now you have to take courage to go against it and change it. And that's what we're living in the midst of. And that's why we're called a, called a post-culture A post-Christian culture. It's after the fact. It's because Christians are not as courageous and brave as vile sinners. And who gets the spotlight? That's one of the reasons. But the whole thing's being changed between our very eyes. And a person that would want a fellowship with God is willing to call this out. 
and not celebritize it. Because it's displeasing to God no matter who does it, whether it's in the church or it's out of the church. That's the that's the point. It's displeasing. To God. And there was a time where rather than saying we need vile sinners to be role models for society, the brave, courageous believers in past said, no, you can't do that because that's what corrodes society. That very thing. No. They spoke against it. And he, we have people now saying this is what's going to bring to our society the love and the peace and the harmony that we all long for. It won't work. So th- this person is really troubled and bothered by the sin in their heart. By the sin in other people's heart. They're not cold to it. They're not callous to it. It just bothers them and they keep chipping away and keep chipping away. They keep coming to the altar and they keep praying that prayer. They keep memorizing and quoting that scripture. Reminds me of a story as things bother you and trouble you. Mark Twain. So he says, when I was a boy, I was walking along the street in town and I saw this cart heaped with delicious watermelons. I just had to have one. I love watermelons. And so I snuck up to that cart and I grabbed one and I ran into the alley and I cracked it open and I sunk my teeth into that watermelon. But no sooner had I done so when a strange feeling overcame me. And without a moment's hesitation, I went back to that cart and I replaced that melon and stole a ripe one. I'm sorry, but that cracks me up. But that's wrong. That's just totally wrong. And that's one of those things that separates us from fellowship with God because it's theft. But he's just funny the way he, he puts it. God desires a people of character. He avoids doing those kind of things. And he doesn't highlight sin, but he also lifts up his brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He honors those that fear the Lord. And so he's the guy that he's the guy that's saying to his brothers and sisters here, let's climb the hill together. Here's my hand. Let's do this together. Yeah, that's a tough climb. That's a tough one to overcome in this pilgrim pilgrimage. But we can do this together. He cares about not just. Not just poo-pooing on sin, but also lifting up those that want to serve the Lord and have a fear. Those that are doing what it takes to care. So, so they're, they're agents of change. They're not just that believer who sits in his Christian armchair and says, oh, the world is so sinful. What are we going to do? Going to hell in a handbasket. Oh, my goodness. Look at that sin. This person wants for the glory of God to be an agent of change. And so they'll call it out. But they'll also go to that ravaged sinner. They'll go to those people in bondage. And speak the truth to them. In Christ, they'll go and love their neighbor so that they might be found on God's holy hill. How sensitive are we to the law of God in our lives today? 
How sensitive are we to it? And then lastly, we see that we are to be a person of integrity. Verse 2, and he speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. In verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So, basically, the kind of person that God delights to fellowship with would be found delighting in God is a person that just speaks the truth. They just, they just say what they mean. They mean what they say. They're reliable. Truth is important to them. So should it be because truth is so important to God? Think about the, the, the triune God who's called God. The Father's called the God of truth. And then God, the Holy Spirit, is called the Spirit of truth. And then God, the Son, is called the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is all in the kingdom. Truth is who God is. He is the Word incarnate. He's truth incarnate. And the person that fellowships and spends time and delights in God Truth is very important. They don't want to cut corners. And this word for integrity, of course, you, you know this. Our English word comes from that word that we learn in math sooner or later, integer. And it's, it means a whole number. It's not fractioned. It's, it's whole through and through. It's not a, there, there's no parts to it. It's completely one unit, and that's a man and a woman of integrity. There's not fractions. You're, you're this way in one light, but over here you're going to act like this way, and over here you're going to say this, but then you're going to say this. And then Jesus attacked this sin in the Sermon on the Mount. It's called hypocrisy. That's one of the, one of the shades of, of lying and being dishonest. It's where you present yourself as one thing, but really deep and down, deep down in here, you're not that at all. It's manipulation. It's evil, Jesus said. It's what keeps you out of the kingdom. It's what keeps you out of fellowship with a God that treasures truth because he is truth. Liars take advantage of people. Distort the truth, stretch it, and refuse to be real, refuse to live in reality. Truth is God's reality. We either accept it or we Reject it. You know, lying is a is an attempt. Again, we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school. It's an attempt to be God. It's an attempt to be in control because I'm going to lie to you because I want you to think about me in a certain light. I want you to think a certain way about me. So to control you to think about me the way I want you to think about me, I'm going to stretch the truth. I'm going to manipulate things. I'm going to take things out of context and highlight things that don't need to be highlighted. So it's a way to control and it's a, it's a form of bondage, too. What happened in the garden? Man fell for a lie. And Satan said, gotcha. Now you're in bondage to me. You believed me. When you believe people, there's a sense in which you are either set free if they're in the truth or you just stay in bondage. And lying is a way to keep people in bondage to you. There's a story a, a very successful businessman tells. Back in the uh, early 1900s, he was just a young buck and he was a clerk in this very lucrative textile business. We used to have textiles here 
in this county. Um, you don't see him anymore, but he, he wanted to work his way up in this factory. He was a factory worker. He wanted to work his way up. He had big dreams, this young man. And one day the boss comes by. Of course, he wants to impress the boss so he can work his way up. And the boss comes by and he begins to talk to him. And in this discourse, he, he tells him, he says, hey, I got a joke for you. And he tells him a filthy, filthy joke. And the young man refuses to laugh. And the boss says, what's the matter? Don't you think it's funny? He says, no, sir, I think it's very filthy. And vile. And the boss said. That took a lot of courage. The young man got a a promotion. He was honest. He didn't play the game. Doesn't always work that way, does it? It could have just as easily meant you just lost your job. You just lost the future that you thought you had. Having guts, so to speak. I just this very week heard a true story. That was a true story, a true story about uh, Christians. I have a Christian friend that was about to buy a home. A home was put on the market by a Christian couple. And they put it for a price, and so the two Christians, they bartered, and they counter-offered, and they, they verbally agreed over the phone on a price for this house. And then when they were expecting the paperwork to go through, they called the owner and said, where's the paperwork for this? And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I got a better offer. The house has been sold. Verbal agreement. Christians. I mean, how important is it to us to keep our word? Is it important, as important to us and meaningful as it is to Almighty God in our everyday dealings? Not just in the religious stuff, in our everyday dealings. Our culture, as you know, is becoming more and more a culture of lies. You know, it's so bad. We've been lied to so many times and hoodwinked. That how many of us even look at anything anymore and don't wonder, is that true? We've, we've been lied to by, by the news, by politicians, by, by religious leaders, by other Christians, by articles, by, by videos, by statements. Things that have been, we've just been, we're lied to so much, it's getting to the point where... You just don't even know what to trust anymore. And that's why we become such a cynical culture. And it's sad. And we're suffering the consequences. God created the world to to be upheld by truth. He created our souls to thrive on honesty and truth. And the more honesty and truth that we create right here in this household of God, the more Safe and the more joyful we will be as believers and the more hungry and earnest for God. Because we're seeing what the power of the kingdom of God can do and we trust each other. How many times have you been talking to a person and they're telling you a story and you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know how much of this is true. Because they're not reliable. They're not a person of integrity. And then there's other people that will tell you something and you're absolutely going to believe it unless you have good reason otherwise to not believe it. These things matter and they are powerful witnesses 
You don't need a miracle for somebody to come to Christ. You be a person of integrity because they're so rare to find in today's culture. And we long for truth. We long for honesty. Our youth are crying out for reality. They don't always go to it in the right place. But they're crying out, I just want something real. They don't even know what is real anymore because they've been lied to so many times. Because they looked at movies or they looked at videos where this claimed to be true and it was a lie. They draw wrong conclusions. And God calls those that would fellowship with him to be people of integrity that mean what they say and say what they mean. Jesus called this out in the Sermon on the Mount. He called everything out in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how we came out of that sermon alive. And he says, you know, you got the, the Pharisees that are that are keeping their word. They, they've created this whole system of levels of truth. Wow, we do that, too, but in different ways. So I'm going to swear that I'm going to make this promise to you on my mother's grave, but I don't have to keep it because I didn't swear and make an oath on the temple. So they have these levels of swearing and making oaths based on whether we got to keep it or not, based on what I made an oath to. And Jesus said, that worked that way. If you made an oath, God knows about it and you're accountable to it. Don't come up with this system stuff. Called that out. Man, we live in such a culture of of lies. And this psalmist is. Basically beckoning us and calling us to be like Christ. <clears throat> now, we have a lot of perks in our digital age. This thing is incredible. And we can do things today and we have things at our fingertips that you just would never even dream would be possible. And mine has about 3% of what it could have on it because I'm old fashioned. <clears throat> but you got to admit, it's incredible. We be when the kids were young, we'd be driving down the road, and in particularly Jesse, she'd just take her phone and stick it out the window, take a picture of something. Man, that could be on National Geographic. I mean, she you don't miss anything with these, even little videos, and a lot of memories are caught of childhoods, things that you would have forgotten, but you have it on video, you have a picture of it. It's incredible the technology we have, but it's also becoming a monster. In a lot of ways, but here's one of the ways. We are starting to fear our own creation because sometimes that one picture or that one video caught us doing something. Or that one picture I took of myself nude and sent it to my dearest friend that I thought would stay private. Somehow it just went viral and my life is ruined. Or that prostitute. Or that racial slur. It's ruining lives. It's ruining careers. People are being caught in things that they wished they were not caught on. And so things are going viral that are not intended to go viral. And so there's this dark cloud over many people's heads. Oh, my goodness. What if that ever got out? Just word to the wise. Don't even put it on there in the first place. That's what the police will tell you. That's the cure. Don't be foolish in the first place. But wait a minute. What's behind all of this? Why do we feel so comfortable to do little evil things as long as only our good friends know about it? And as long as it doesn't get out on the WWW, 
We're cool with this. It's okay. Why do we conclude that? Here's what should take place. We should be saying to ourselves based on how we use our money and our godly character and our integrity. We should be saying to himself, I'm not going to take this picture. I'm not going to say this thing to begin with because I fear God more than I fear man. We fear man when it comes to this viral stuff. Why did we not fear God back here when we should have never done it in the first place? That's a big problem we have. We should fear, fear God two million times more than we fear the two million viewers that might ruin our lives. God holds the power of death. The scripture says, don't fear man, fear he who holds the power of life and death. That's the answer. Be like Christ. Love God with your decisions. It's what the Bible calls when he says, live out your salvation. Salvation isn't a one time, just a one time thing. It's something that you embrace and then you live it out. Yeah, Christ, you're my savior. And now I'm going to live that out. You just saved me from sins. And now I'm going to live that out by loving you. The law of God is how we love God. It shows people how what salvation even looks like as we obey the law of God. And it's not for acceptance. It's out of devotion. It's out of gratitude. Why? Because God changed my heart. God freed me from my own sins that were wrecking my world. And talk about bondage and talk about miserable being miserable. Now, God is a God of truth. And so in his word, he doesn't he he tells it like it is. And he says, look, if you're going to follow me, guess what? There's going to be some good times. You're going to get persecuted. There'll be good times. You're going to get persecuted. Don't be surprised. As a matter of fact, the more godly you become, the more it's going to hurt. So I love the way he tells it like it is. He doesn't, this is a terrible marketing book. It really is, if you think about it, because he tells everybody's dirt. The only hero in the Bible is Christ. You know what? We look at David and Moses and all these holy, righteous people. And all oh, there's the only hero in the Bible is Christ. And that's what the Bible points us to Christ. So we're going to suffer. And we think it's bad to suffer. And I'll tell you, the worst suffering, the most horrendous suffering that you will encounter is a sin in your own heart. It will dog you through this life. And it will be way worse than any kind of Christian persecution that you will ever face. The sin in our own hearts will bog us down, will put us in shackles. It will plague our minds. It will plague our hearts. It will rob us of joy. The sin in our own hearts. And that's why the Bible calls us. Christ says, come. I know you're in bondage. I know you're so tired. You're tired of fighting it. You're tired of living the lie. Come to me. I will set you free. I will put life. I will make you a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Don't fall prey to Christian fakery. We have to be careful that we're not raising the next generation of hypocrites. 
Because sometimes as Christians, especially as parents, we are very tempted to play the fakery game. How? Well, we teach and train our kids. Here's how I want you to behave in church because people are looking. And I want to look really good in front of these people. But when you're at home or, you know, just do whatever you want. We teach our kids to be hypocrites that way. That's not real. What is that? It's the very thing that Jesus confronted. We're doing, we're being righteous to get a reward from the praise of man. Oh, your children are so well behaved. That's because you got shop collars underneath their shirts in church. When they get home, you take them off. Praise of man is a dangerous thing. Let's not teach our kids to be the next generation of hypocrites. It makes the whole fabric of society lying and fakery. It just pulls it all apart. Let me close with this. What's it mean to keep your word? Here's the whole reason I went to this psalm. Because I, I read this verse and it, I was just like, man. Got to preach that song. So now we're just starting the sermon. It's verse four, uh, verse. Where is it? it? Should be verse five. Where is it here? No, no, it's verse four. Um, what does it mean to keep your word in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but with who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change? When is the last time you kept your word to your hurt and didn't bail? G.K. Chesterton says a promise. Now, this is very profound. A promise is an appointment you make with yourself. It's an appointment you make with yourself for the future. In other words, a promise says, regardless of what happens, I'm going to be there when you make a promise. You free yourself from the uncertainty of the future. Now, Timothy Keller will flesh that out a little bit for us. He says, forgiveness is the only way you can keep from being controlled by your painful past. We know that. Promising is the only way you can keep from being controlled by your unpredictable future. He's not finished. So when you promise I'm going I'm going to love you. What, what, what you're saying is I refuse to be pushed around by my genes, by my brain chemistry, by my society, by my culture, by my history. I promise to be there for you five years from now. When you make a big promise, the promises to your spouse, when you make a big promise to your employer, when you make the big promises, even to a church, people come to me and say, what is this church membership stuff? What do you mean by being a member of a church? He says it's very simple. Membership just means you make a promise and you keep it. The Bible says life should be built on promises, a promise to be there regardless of how I feel, regardless of my genes or my brain chemistry. When you make a promise, you bear witness to the fact that you're not a lump of human dough pushed about by your glands or pushed about by the environment. You see the power in just keeping your word, making a promise, saying this is what I'm going to do. When we break our when we Break a promise. We, we go against ourselves. We break ourselves. See, a lawbreaker is somebody who's trying to break the law. But really what happens is the law is a rock. And we're like uh, Kevin DeYoung says, we're like that mirror, a piece of glass. 
You throw yourself onto that rock. What's going to break the glass? And every time we go to break the law, we're really breaking ourselves. We're disassembling ourselves. We're hurting ourselves. Every lie we tell, everything we stretch. We're hurting ourselves. We're destroying ourselves. We're breaking ourselves against the rock of God's law, even when it hurts. So do we just go where it's the most advantageous to us? Or do we just stay where we made a promise? So. um, Close with a few little practical things, your kids, you know. Our kids are grown now, so they have to make their own decisions. But all right, your kids, uh, one of the friends at church, they called you during the week. They said, would you like to come over and do this after church on Sunday? And you say yes. But in between that time, you got another call by another friend and they want you to come over and do something Sunday. And it's way more fun, way more pleasurable. What are you going to do? You're going to bail. You're going to cancel. If you if you made your word, if you kept your word, if you made a promise, yeah, I'll be there. Let's do that. You verbally promise to tell to sell your truck, say, or your house or whatever. You verbally promise to sell it at this price on these conditions. Then you get a call. Somebody else is interested in it and you can make a lot more money and you need that money. What are you going to do? Promise to take the kids fishing or to King's Dominion or something really, really fun. You promise to do it. They're hanging on it. But today is the one and only sale day of the items or the sports goods or whatever it is that you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for them to come on sale. And now it's on sale. What are you going to do? You made a promise to nurture, care for your kids and raise them in the admonition of the Lord But you just have been given a job offer that's going to take you away from home. What are you going to do? You made a promise to God. You made a promise to God to live for him, to love him, to surrender your life to him. But the world's calling. There's opportunities out there. The flesh is calling. What are you going to do? Will you move? Because this scripture says you will not be moved. How can you not be moved when all these temptations come and you know they're coming? Maybe even right now they're crossing your mind because you've already made up your mind. You made a promise. When you make a promise, you make your mind up back here so it doesn't matter what happens up here. I don't have to think and wonder. You ever try to change somebody's mind that's already made up? That's how we need to be when it comes to truth. I think, if anything, this psalm challenges us to ask the question, what is my mind made up about? Is my mind made up and firm on the right things? Can I say I made a promise and I aim to keep it? I made a promise and I aim to keep it. I love those words. You know why? Because they come from one of my favorite movies. Yes, Tolkien, yes, Fellowship of the Rings. Okay, you're with me now and I'm closing with it. If you watch the movie, Frodo. Frodo's got the ring. And his, the Fellowship is under attack by the Urukai at this place by the river. 
They're about to be overcome. I mean, it's a. And Frodo's realizing, man. Hey, I got one, too. I got a ring. But he's he's realizing. I am putting my loved ones. These guys are risking their lives for me. I am putting their lives in danger. I got to go the rest of the way by myself. I cannot take it in good conscience. I can't live with this. And so he sneaks away. And he sneaks down to the edge of the river. And he gets in the boat. And he begins to go on his own to Mordor. Then, one of the most beautiful cinematic pictures. Here comes his friend, Sam Wise Gamgee. And he sees Frodo. And he's panic stricken. Frodo! And so Sam begins to walk into the river, into the water. And he's walking farther and farther to try to get to his good friend Frodo. The problem is Sam can't swim. And so he's finally, he's over his head. And yeah, the underwater cameras, man, they got it. He's about to drown. His eyes are open. He's sinking. He's down there with the sea creatures, the fish. And the, and, and the loyal, faithful friend, he's about to die. It's a very, very emotional moment. Sniffling going on in the theater. I'm about to cry just thinking about it. I'm not kidding. About to cry just thinking about it. So... Then all of a sudden, a hand comes down into the water, grabs Frodo's hand. I mean, Bill, uh, Sam's hand. Grabs him, pulls him up into the boat. And there he is, sitting opposite of Frodo, soaking wet, practically gasping for air. And, and it's understood Frodo's like, oh, Sam, what are you doing? And I quote, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo. A promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I aim to keep it. New Covenant Fellowship. In the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, have you made your promise to God. By the power of God. By the Spirit of God. By the mercies of God. Have you made your promise to God? And do you aim To keep it that we all might grab hands and descend the hill and stay in this sweet place of fellowship with Almighty God. May God bless the preaching of his word.